Before we begin our Torah study tonight, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. This week's Torah portion is called Kitavo, and it talks about when the children of Israel go into the promised land, how they're to live. And there are a a few scriptures that I um, was drawn to from the Torah reading, and I want to uh, bring your attention to them. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 26, starting in verse 1. And it says this, When you have come to the land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, taken possession of it and settled there, and then it explains some things that you are to do as a result. And as I was looking at this, I was thinking, it's interesting, the division of responsibility. There are four things we're called to do and one thing the Lord does. So the thing the Lord does is very simple. It's right in the middle of that verse. The Lord is giving you this land as an inheritance. The Lord gives gifts, he gives opportunities, he gave the children of Israel a specific place, some real estate, a a land, and he was the one who took that responsibility. The scripture is really bold in saying that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and all who dwell in it. So it's a way of saying that there is not only a creator, but there is a possessor of all things. The one who creates also has title to, if you will, the whole earth. And that's why he can look at you and say, you belong to me. Now, when we say, yes, Lord, you know what we're saying? We're saying we agree with him. We belong to him. And we say Lord, which is a really nice religious word, but you could also understand it to mean boss in a a certain way. I remember when I was a teenager growing up in the 60s and the 70s, and you know, it was a time of of great questioning of society and the rules and and so forth. And I was part of that, that movement that questioned everything. How many of you have that in you? You'd like to question everything. Just a few of you? Gosh, you are more easygoing than the people I grew up with. But I remember a bumper sticker that a friend of mine had on his car that captured uh, the essence of that mentality. It said, question authority. And that was our attitude. You know, we were suspicious of those who were in authority. We were until we started getting responsibility and had to bear responsibility and make decisions and try to do a good job. And then it was like, hey, don't question our hearts, you know? (laughs) But when we're saying Lord and we're saying yes, Lord, when we're saying Adonai, we're saying, Lord, you are the one who has the authority to tell me what is good and what is not good. You have also the authority to instruct me, and you have the authority to command me, to send me somewhere to do something on your behalf. That's a a very important thing. It's very different than just saying, I believe in God. That's easy. Um, It's a whole other matter to allow God to 
give responsibility to us and assignments to us, to trust us. So faith is something that requires trust and it requires being trustworthy. It's an interesting side in the Hebrew, emunah, which means faith, also means faithful. So we want to be trusting a faithful God, but we want to be trustworthy to God. We want him to be able to depend on us. If you've ever uh, tried to raise kids, if you've ever tried to manage a group of people, if you've ever taught a class in school, you really pay attention to the ones who do what you need for them to do and do it gladly and, and joyfully. And the ones that will never do it, you know, you know that, that there's a problem. The Lord's looking for people who, who want to be faithful to him. It's not because their parents told them they must. It's not because they were raised in one religion or another. It's because they have a living relationship with the living God who they feel loyalty to. So this scripture tells us that God gives the children of Israel land. That's his part. But look at what the part, the four things that the children of Israel had to do. Number one, they had to come into the land. Some people have a very passive attitude about things of God, which is if God wants it to happen, he'll make it happen. Well, when God called Abraham, he said lech lecha, which was a way of saying, get yourself up and get out. The Lord would not do that for Abraham. Abraham had to do it in response to the Lord's instruction. But the Lord said to Abraham, and I will show you the land that I want you to go to. So you get up, you start moving in the direction that he shows you, and he takes responsibility for saying, here's the destination. So you have the responsibility, you and I have a responsibility to come to the land. We have a responsibility to respond to the direction of God and allow him to show us where he wants us to go, but we have to do, we have to put in effort. Then here's the next part take possession of that land. It's not always easy to take possession of anything, but this requires effort, it requires commitment, it requires diligence. And then the last part of the instruction is settle there. Get established, don't be a nomad forever. You're not called to live the Bedouin life, you're called to settle down and to form communities and to be a part of a community, to get established and then from that place of settling, you can grow and you can thrive. So that instruction I think is an interesting beginning. The next passage that caught my attention is, is in the next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter seven, starting in verses, just verses nine and 10. And it says next, Moses and the Kohanim, the high priests, who are Levites or Leviim, spoke to all of Israel and they said this, be quiet and listen. Say that with me, be quiet and listen. That is such a family way of talking. <laughs> be quiet and listen, Israel, 
Today you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you are to listen to what the Lord your God says and then obey his commands and instructions which I'm giving you today. That's a nice translation. The Hebrew says that you are to listen to the voice of the Lord and to do what he tells you and what he instructs you about. I love this statement, be quiet and listen. Say that again with me. Be quiet and listen. And then the next one that follows it and is necessary to complete it, it says, listen and obey. Say that with me, listen and obey. In fact, you, you might wanna amplify the English to, to say this, listen, pay attention, and then do what you're told. Isn't that an interesting idea? Listen, pay attention, and do what you're told. Obey the voice of the Lord. Now, embedded in this is a very important, very sophisticated spiritual idea about humanity. It's this, that each one of us has the ability to listen and to hear spiritually. Each one of us is given a capacity where in addition to our normal ears that can hear sounds in the physical world, we have spiritual ears in parallel that can hear sounds, if you will, in the spiritual world. It's interesting that in Torah, there are many passages that say this, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Moses uh, uses that phrase many times, the prophets of Israel and other writers of the Jewish people use that phrase. And it's a very concrete way of expressing what could be an abstract idea. The, the concrete is this. I heard something spiritually and it came to me in the way that words do. It had meaning, it had content, it had objectivity to it. It came as a word comes. And the prophets of Israel we're, we're not like mystical you know, gurus. They were people who had a living relationship with God whose spiritual ears were tuned to the voice of the Lord. They were ready to hear what the Lord had to say and then to do what he had to say. Be quiet and listen. That reminds me of what happened with Elijah. Do you remember when when he fled after his great victory over the prophets of Baal, he fled into the wilderness and he was looking, he was waiting for a word from the Lord and there was this huge thunderstorm. There was, you know, an earthquake. There was great noise. But the scripture says in each of those things, it wasn't the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to him. The Hebrew says this, with the quiet voice of quietness. And there's a wonderful translation, the still, small voice. Still meaning like still waters. That, that very peaceful voice of the Lord. And the Lord basically said to Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Get up and go back and I will watch over you and take care of you and continue to use you. 
We need to be quiet. We need to take Shabbat to get into a restful condition. We need the refreshment that comes from the presence of God. We need times of quietness and even times every day of quietness where we spend time listening to the Lord. It's good to speak to the Lord, but it's even better to listen to the Lord and then to speak. And there, there are times when people limit their prayers to what you could call gimme prayers. Do you know what I mean by that? Gimme this, gimme that. I want, I want, I need. Uh, you know, it goes between demanding and begging and whining and all this stuff. And if, if you've ever hung around little kids who are like that, you know how annoying it is. And if we are little kids to the Lord, it's kind of annoying if all we're saying is, gimme, 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 I want this, I want that. Now, now, now. There's another way of relating to the Lord, of talking to the Lord, and that is to say, Lord, what's on your heart? Lord, what's important to you? Lord, what do you want me to see? What do you want me to hear? What do you want me to understand? What do you want me to do? And when we approach the Lord like that, the scripture teaches us he will speak to us. And that is why the, the washword of Israel is the Shema. Listen, Israel. Listen. Listen. If you've ever had kids, you probably said this, you're not listening. Even when they are physically listening, they're not taking in or taking to heart what you're saying. How many of you had parents who said that to you? The Lord wants us to learn to listen to him. That's what these passages are about in this Torah portion. We need to be quiet. We need to cultivate a listening ear. And the listening ear that we use with the Lord will also equip us in our relationships with other people. One of the most powerful and therapeutic healing ways that you can relate to people is to listen to them. To listen carefully and to distill the essence of what they're saying, both the content, the purpose, and the emotion of what they're saying. To capture it in such a way that you can distill and crystallize it and then play back what you understand they're saying. And when they say, yes, that's it, it's, it's healing for people. If you've ever felt like no one understands you and then you're talking to someone and they get you, and the way you know they get you is they put into words what you're trying to say and what you're thinking and what you're feeling. When we do this, it has a powerful effect on other people. And God wants us to develop that listening ear. To listen to him equips us to listen to other people as well. But I love that it's not just confined to listening, be quiet and listen. No, it goes beyond that. Listen and then do it. Just do it. And obey the commands of the Lord and the instructions of the Lord. So listening and doing, these are really the hallmarks of being a disciple of Yeshua. Now I want to turn to another passage. I'm going to skip over the Haftorah 
today just for, for time, and I want to go to a reading from the Brita Harasha, actually two passages that cover the, the, same, um, the same moments. The first one is in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 50. And the context is this, the Sanhedrin, the, um, the legal council of Jewish leaders in ancient Israel was gathering together and the, that body of, um, of authority holders, if you will, priests and teachers and um, scholars and religious leaders of all kinds, they're about to make a decision about Yeshua. And this passage in Luke 23 tells us about one of the men who was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was a minority in that particular group because he did not agree with the decisions that were being made. Let's read Luke chapter 23, uh, starting in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, and he was a good and upright man who had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision or their actions about Yeshua. In other words, they, he did not agree with what they did or why they did it. He did not agree, as Stern says in his translation, with their decision or their motivation. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. But it may be better to translate it this way. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was already alert about God's kingdom. And he was expectant. And he had eyes to see. Now this describes what happened after Yeshua was crucified. The next verse says, Going to Pilate, Joseph asked for Yeshua's body his dead body, and he took it down, and then he wrapped it in linen cloth, and he placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day before Passover and the Shabbat was about to begin. Now there were some of the disciples of Yeshua who could not bear to, to remain present during the crucifixion and who felt that it was just too agonizing, plus it was too risky for them. Some of them just went away. And they put distance between themselves and the one who they thought was Messiah, but now he's been executed. But this particular man, Joseph, he actually stayed at the crucifixion and he waited until Yeshua had died. He did not go away. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He may have been the only one from the Sanhedrin who was standing there at the crucifixion. But he had a particular attitude. It was one of awe and respect. And he thought, he thought in a way that was different from the others. The others thought, we need to stop Yeshua. And... Joseph thought otherwise. Now there is a passage that parallels this in Matthew chapter 27 that has two details that are missing 
that I think are very interesting. Matthew 27, verse 57 says, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Yeshua. So now we know not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was also quite wealthy. And not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a disciple of Yeshua's. And so his presence at the crucifixion was unique in this respect. He was expressing loyalty to Yeshua and faithfulness to him. And in a sense, he was courageous and fearless when others of less courage were fleeing. He remained present and he personally went to Pilate and said, give me the body. And I don't know with what tone, I think it was respectful. But this, this Joseph of Arimathea, this Jewish leader of Israel, this member of the Sanhedrin, was a disciple of Yeshua and he understood a secret that not everyone understood at that time. You see, many of the disciples of Yeshua were against the idea that Yeshua needed to suffer, that Messiah would suffer, and that he would die, and then he would be raised from the dead. They had this idea, Messiah is the conquering king. He'll come in, he'll vanquish the Romans, and set Israel free once again. And no, he doesn't need to suffer. He needs to make them suffer. Get rid of them. And in fact, many people have an idea of justice that's very different than the idea that Joseph had and demonstrated or the idea that Yeshua had. Sometimes we think that the only way that justice can work is to stop a wrong before it happens. But God has another way of working. He turns things upside down. He takes even things that appear to be unjust and he brings justice out of them. He takes things that others might think of as so wrong that, that they're abhorrent and he brings good out of them. Now it's not that the thing itself is good. It's that he overturns. In fact, the whole idea that you and I can receive comfort that allows us to comfort others. This is a reflection of this principle. You and I can suffer, and through that suffering, when God comforts us, it changes us. Maybe you've experienced a loss that really touched you deeply, and maybe it took not a day, not a few hours, not a few weeks, but years to recover from. When God brings healing to you through comfort, however long it takes, it changes you so that you're in a position now where you can show comfort to other people during the times of their suffering. Now, Joseph knew a secret, and Yeshua knew a secret, and neither one of these people had in their understanding uh, something that was widely held or that was popular among anyone. They knew this secret. Yeshua was not the victim of other people's unjust power. Yeshua said something like this once. He said, if you could see what I can see, 
you would know I've got all the power and I could stop you. I could stop this. I could, I could overrule everything that you're doing. But Yeshua's secret was this. He knew that the only way to provide an atoning sacrifice that would work once for all, that would work for everyone under every circumstance, both at that moment and in the future, was if he willingly laid down his life. And in fact, he said to others, you don't take my life, I lay it down. This was a secret, and this changed everything. Yeshua was going to what looked like an unjust execution, and on the face of it was, in terms of legality, in terms of due process and so forth, it was unjust. However, in Yeshua's understanding, and in the understanding of Joseph, if I, if I get this right, they were not focusing on the, unjust, the injustice of it all. They were focusing on what the outcome would be through all this. Yeshua laid his life down. No one took it from him. And because I think Joseph understood that, he remained at that horrible moment of execution, the crucifixion on the cross, the, the torture of Yeshua. He remained there seeing beyond the moment into the greater purpose and then beyond. And he not only remained there, but he individually went to Pilate and said, okay, I need the body. Give me the body. I have the means and the desire to provide a proper burial for this one. And he was given the body. And he took a, um, what I understand to be a relatively expensive gravesite tomb and gave it to Yeshua um, as, as his temporary resting place. Joseph was a disciple of Yeshua's. You know what that meant? It meant he heard the voice of the Lord and he did what the Lord was telling him to do and instructing him about. He saw beyond the present moment and he saw into the purpose. He saw beyond what seemed like uh, a travesty of justice and understood, no, no, God is working a greater justice than you could ever imagine. This is not the failure of God and the failure of Messiah. This is the victory of Messiah that God has come down, he's taken on a human body in order to be a kinsman redeemer. So both the Lord and the eternal one and of humanity as well, and his human body was crucified. You can't kill God by definition. So his human flesh was tortured and crucified and he became a sacrifice of atonement for us. That's how it was accomplished. Now when you grasp that, it revolutionizes your understanding of suffering. It changes how you view your suffering if you can see the hand of God working to comfort you and equip you in order to show mercy to other people.
when you receive comfort, when you receive mercy, when you receive forgiveness even, it causes you to be transformed so that you can show something to other people that you couldn't otherwise show. Yeshua tells a parable about someone who was forgiven this massive amount of debt and another one who was given a small debt. And he asked the question, so which one is gonna be more grateful for the forgiveness they received? And the answer is obvious, it's not a trick question. It's the one who was forgiven a lot. And Yeshua builds on that and teaches us that when we recognize what we've been forgiven of or what we need to be forgiven of, it changes us, it causes us to grow in love. Now, if, if you just compare yourself to some other schlump somewhere, and you find a schlemiel of this kind or a schlemazel of that kind who um, is far worse than you are in every way that counts to you, then you can easily, easily compare and say, I'm pretty good compared to her or him. And all of us can do that. And if you're just looking to do that, it's, it's so easy to do it. But if you really wanna take measure of yourself, compare yourself to a holy God. And then to say, compared to him, how am I doing? Answer, not so good. Because all of us are weak, all of us are frail, all of us fall short. All of us sin. All of us miss the mark. All of us bear the imprint of iniquity, that tendency to go against that which is good. We're, we're in a battle. And when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, it's a whole other standard. Whenever we do that in humility, we have a different perspective. Now I had a funny experience a few weeks ago that to me parallels this, though it's not about sin or anything like that. I had two grandsons with us for a week and one of them has his learner's permit but he has not yet driven. And so all week he was saying, Saba, um, I can drive, you know, I'm ready to drive, you know, let me drive. And we get in the car, you say, give me the keys. And he said it in, in a joking way, but with a bit of bravado. And so one day I said to him, I want to give you a driving lesson so that you can actually drive. And about 10 minutes before that lesson, he took me in a room privately and he said, Saba, I don't know anything about driving. I don't have any idea what to do. I've never driven before. I don't know what to do. And it was a bit of humility that was refreshing given his bravado. And I looked at him and I said, don't worry, I've taught a lot of boys to drive. You're not the first. And he said, oh, thank goodness. 
And so we spent about an hour driving in a parking lot with no other cars or trees. And uh, he had to learn to park the car and not use the gas, just the brake and to steer and to stop and start and a bunch of other things to give his signals. And at the end, he was doing pretty well. So I said, okay, now we're gonna go out on the road. And he looked at me in horror. You know, I, I'm not ready for that. But it was in an office park where there was nothing else happening. You know, there were no drivers there. And we drove, you know, like around the corner. And then he got out and I took the car the rest of the way. And he was relieved. Well, the reason I connected that is he went from bravado to humility. And the humility was just honest. It wasn't anything else. He had no clue what to do, and he needed to learn how to do it. The humility that you and I need with God is just like that, it's to be honest with him and to say, Lord, I, I, I aspire to this, but really I'm down here. How many times do we fall short? And if we're only comparing ourselves to people who fall short more obviously than we do, it doesn't really help us. But when we come clean with God and say, you know, Lord, um, I've got this anger, or I've got these reactions in me, or I, I say I want to do this, but in fact I do that. Um, that needs to change. I, I want to be straight with you. When we learn to do that, we experience the mercy of God. Because the scripture teaches this. If we admit our sins to the Lord, then he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins, faithful and just. It's just to do that. And to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know what we want is not just a steady stream of forgiveness. We want to change. We want to be different. We want to grow up, don't we? We want to be raised up into people who actually carry the image of God well and who grow in character. That's what our hope is. As we're preparing for the new year and for the Day of Atonement and for Sukkot and for Simchat Torah, I want you to keep this in mind. Be straight with the Lord, be honest with him. You'll go further that way. It'll help you in ways you can't imagine. You can always tell God the truth. And the truth with God will really set you free. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of mercy and that your mercy triumphs over justice. But you're also a God of truth and justice. And so we thank you, Lord, for the victory of Yeshua over the power of sin and death. We thank you for resurrection life. And we thank you that not only have you made us, but you have purchased us. You've paid for us. You have redeemed us and you have made it possible for us to live a whole new way of life with you through Messiah Yeshua. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as we're preparing for the holidays, that we would really want to draw close to you and to grow up in you and to become those new creations, new men, new women, who not only want to follow you, but do. Give us hearing ears, give us eyes that see and hearts that understand and pour out upon us the gift of repentance that leads to life. We pray this in the name of Yeshua.
Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing, and I'd like to ask you to rise. And if you're standing by yourself, just shuffle a little bit. Here comes Rabbi Uri. Always a pleasure to stand together with Rabbi Uri. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.